A friend of mine once suggested to another friend that he read the works of one of the most famous writers in English literature, John Donne. Donne, of course, is the person who gave us such phrases as, no man is an island, and ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Well, some while later, my friend asked this other person, say, what did you think about John Donne? And he replied, I liked it, but he sure used a lot of cliches. Well, no, Donne's the one who gave us what became such cliches. Ephesians 2 might be like that. So many of the best-known phrases in the New Testament come from this one chapter, but these must never become cliches. These are the dearest truths of the gospel, and today on Groundwork, we will dig into this rich chapter. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose, and Daryl, this is now uh, episode two of our planned six-part series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. There are six chapters, and so we'll have six episodes here. We looked in the uh, first episode at Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul showed how much he loved the Christians at Ephesus, and he also spent a lot of time exploring the mysteries of our divine election or our, our predestination in Christ. Yeah, it's important to bring up from that episode that we did that God had this plan in motion way right. before creation, before the problem of the fall. He has the solution of the resurrection and redemption plan in place. And not only does it include all of creation, it includes the fellow believers like the Ephesians and like us. Exactly. So, you know, we don't want to uh, we don't want to study this incredible second chapter of Ephesians just uh, again for information or just to take note of this or that rhetorical feature. Uh, Paul wanted the Ephesians to be deeply energized by what he was writing here, and perhaps they needed that because of you know they they faced difficult times, they faced persecution, they lived in a very very pagan city there in Ephesus, full of religious idolatry and and bad practices. And so Paul wants to reach into the hearts. In fact, we saw uh, in that first chapter, Daryl, in the previous episode, that Paul had this, this prayer. And he said, I pray that the eyes of your yep. heart may be enlightened, that the eyes of your heart may be opened. I love that phrase. That's what Paul wanted for the Ephesians, and that's what we all want for us today. That's why we're looking at Ephesians 2 uh, in this program. And it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So we talked in the previous episode about uh, how Paul was really celebrating predestination, divine election. In history, we've kind of turned those things into problems. But here we touch on something else that those of us who come from the Reformed neck of the woods, and particularly the Calvinist Reformed neck of the woods, John Calvin sometimes gets a accused of being rather gloomy, and Calvinists are sometimes said to be kind of gloomy because we talk about total depravity. It's sort of one of the the, the main teachings of, of Calvinism that we are all totally depraved. And some people find that kind of talk to be off-putting. But again, like with predestination and election in chapter one, the idea behind total depravity comes right from Paul, not from John right. Calvin or Augustine. Paul's talking about that. 
you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That is the total depravity that you're talking about. So they're not just sick. They're not just ailing, but they are dead, spiritually speaking. So they can't hear the things of God. They don't want to be uh, involved in the things of God. They are actually heading in the opposite direction of what God wants them to go in. And that is the total depravity that you are speaking of right now. And that situation is not just a bleak one. It's not just a bad one. It's horrible. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way around it, Scott. No. My high school religion teacher, Lou Vandermeer, uh, had an analogy. He said, you know, suppose you got a dog. If your dog is sick and he's lying on a blanket on the other side of the, the family room, you can, you know, you know, you can call, you can whistle for the dog. And if the dog's sick, he might be a little old and sick and stiff, but, you know, he can hoist himself up and come lay at your feet. If, uh, however, the dog on the other side of the room is dead, you can whistle all you want. You can call all you want. The dog is not coming to lay at your feet. He's dead. That's what Paul says they had been spiritually. The Ephesians had not been just sick, dead. And as the undertaker and uh, author Thomas Lynch points out, when people are dead, you have to do everything for them. I mean, the, the dead just can't do for themselves. And that's what you were spiritually, Paul says. So there's this movie I like. It's called Memento, where everything's backwards. Hmm. And there's a guy who has a memory problem. He wakes up in the morning. He looks at a bottle of, of wine. It's empty. And he says, well, I don't feel drunk. So he's trying to figure out what happened because he can't remember. Now, in this situation where they're dead in their transgressions, they don't feel dead. Right. But they actually are spiritually dead. So they're going to do what they think living it up is. They're going to go party. They're going to go to the pagan place over there to to have these things happen. They're going to get involved in all the cultural things that are moving them away from God because they think they're feeling alive. They want to be alive. They want to be the life of the party, but they're actually dead inside. And none of that will give them the salvation that they need. And they actually became objects of wrath. So it gets worse. It gets worse. So, yeah, um, they're spiritually dead. But by being spiritually spiritually dead, that means that they have no interest, as you said. They don't pay any attention to the things of God, so they just smash through God's moral boundary fences with abandon. Whether you know it or not, when you're spiritually dead, you actually are spending most of the time kind of thumbing your nose at God or worse. So, in other words, you are anti-God and therefore deserving of wrath, Paul says. God would be right to be wrathful toward you. So what's going to get them out of this death spiral? They're dead and they're making their situation worse. What can get them out of it? Only a clean start called grace. The grace is something that God has to initiate because evidently when these people are dead in their transgressions, like when we're all dead in our transgressions, we don't want anything to do with God. Right. And God has to intervene. And we talked about this in another episode where intervention needs to happen to stop you from destroying yourself. And God knows that we will continue on this path and destroy ourselves if he doesn't jump in with this grace. That's why I like this verse that we're going to read here from Ephesians 2, where it says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order for in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so we see that God has not only made us alive, but he's raised us up to dwell spiritually with Jesus in heavenly realms. <laughs> we would have never had that opportunity before. It's all a gift from God. Yep. The dead had to be made alive. The blind had to have their eyes open. The past had to be dispensed with through forgiveness. We can't undo it, but God can be, give us this new beginning. And so it's all grace. It's all gift. It's all God. It's all Jesus all the time. Now, we do still have to live lives of gratitude, but basically when you've been given a gift like that, everything after that is gravy. Everything after that is just a giant thank you card to God. So that's just 10 verses, Daryl, of Ephesians chapter 2, and Paul somehow managed to pack in all the theology of the gospel in 10 verses. But wait, there's more. So we'll continue to explore Ephesians 2 in just a moment. God's greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is to love our neighbors. Today, loving our neighbors is as urgent as ever. In January, see how the Bible defines the word neighbor and reflect on the diversity of neighborhoods where Jesus taught and healed. Then, let's focus together on Jesus moving into our own neighborhoods and relationships. Join today in January 2022 for the devotional series, Loving Our Neighbors. Refresh, refocus, and renew at todaydevotional.com. I'm Daryl Delaney with Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork. So let's dive right back into Ephesians 2, uh, Daryl. We've uh, read the first 10 verses, but now let's grab the next eight, starting at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the true groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. For through him we all have access to the Father by the one Spirit. So in this situation, Scott, we see that there's a distinguishing between the Jews and the Gentiles. Right. We got those who are circumcised. We got those who are uncircumcised. And there was a separation that God spoke to his covenant people. God was moving among his covenant people. If they believed the press, which they did, they thought they were special. They thought they were somebody because they, they were told for centuries that well, you're my prized possession. Right. But they didn't realize that it wasn't because of their merit or because of their status or because of their place in the world that God chose them. They forgot that it was a grace thing. And so this incorporation of now the new humanity with the Jews and the Gentiles coming together is also a work of grace. But God always had a plan to involve the entire creation and not just one people group. Right. Now, some people could take offense at this, right? This is uh, in religious terms called particularism. Israel, for a while, was unique. Israel was special. And you were either in Israel and therefore in the embrace of God's love, or you weren't. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, these days, well, back in those days too probably, uh, you know, everybody wanted to say, well, let's just be tolerant, pluralistic. Uh, well, let's all get along. Let's say, along. yeah, that we're all we're all a little bit in touch with the truth, right? So we don't want one special people. But Paul says, no, for a time, and it was temporary, as you just said, Daryl, for a time, Israel was special. And if you weren't in it, then you're out with God. You didn't have God in the world, Paul says here. But it was temporary. God was going to bring everybody in. Israel was just the beachhead. It was just the beginning. Uh, it wasn't a permanent state of affairs. Though we've noted, Daryl, that uh, Israel forgot that. We, we did a series on Jonah oh, yeah. uh, a while back, and Jonah forgot that because he didn't want the Ninevites to come into the club, right? But God wanted to save them and did. We also did a, an Advent series on the family tree in Matthew 1 where we noted that the first four women yep. noted in that genealogy, that family tree, were all non-Israelites. We've noted in many of our episodes the fact that God has always had the whole world involved yep. into that redemption plan. Isaiah 49, 6 says, I will make you, Israel, as a light to the nations that my salvation shall reach the ends of the earth. And Jesus literally sends the disciples to go into all the world because he wants to make sure that the new humanity that they have, Jews and Gentiles, these distinguished markers are not as important anymore as their identity in the family of God and the body of Christ. And Paul draws this out now in interesting ways. So he said, look, there used to be a dividing wall of hostility between the Gentiles and the Jews. The Jews, unfortunately, sometimes got a little full of themselves. As you just said, they forgot that they were in by grace too. And so they would look down their noses at Samaritans and Gentiles and you know everybody else. What Jesus did, Paul says, is he knocked down that dividing wall. He knocked down all the dividing walls that separate people. And what an important message that is, Daryl, because if human history proves anything, <laughs> it's that we've been really good at building dividing walls. Yes. Yeah, so you think about the Great Wall of China. You think about the Berlin Wall. You think about redlining as a as a geographical wall, racially speaking, for real estate. We see walls all over the place. So there are external walls. And there are internal walls. Some people, because of race, because of identity, because of status, because of gender, there have been walls and labels that they have made, and even in this contemporary world we live in. And Christ broke down all the dividing walls, and the unity is what we need now. And God is calling us to that based on the person and work of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Yeah, that's a good point. You pointed to some literal walls. Uh, there are metaphorical walls like the Iron Curtain that the Soviet Union drew across Eastern Europe. That wasn't, uh, I think it's Winston Churchill who coined that phrase. It wasn't a literal Iron Curtain, of sure. course. But if you ever came up on the border between West Germany and East Germany like I did, it felt like an Iron Curtain. Uh, you didn't cross. <laughs> you didn't go in there. You get shot. Uh, but, yeah, the redlining thing, you know, uh, city planners drawing a red line on the map saying no black families can buy beyond right. that line. We're going to keep them out. Maybe that has mostly ended, but now we've got gated communities and people building other walls. Christ came to break down all those walls, Paul says. But, Daryl, unfortunately, the church has sometimes been guilty of helping to build walls, or sometimes we help prop up walls that are already in existence. And that may be racial walls or white supremacist walls or white nationalist walls or whatever they may be. Whenever the church helps to prop it up, whether the church built the wall in the first place, if we help prop it up, we show that we don't get the gospel. We don't get what the cross means. 
And Dr. Martin Luther King said this, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Mm. And he said that because he was actually a gospel minister who understood this passage where Protestant, Catholic, Jew, Gentile could hold hands and make sure that they knew the unity that Christ offers could be afforded to anyone and everyone. And in our lives, we need to not be complicit and continue to build up walls even the online and digital places, mm. there are walls built up on our Facebook pages, on our, we have wall, we call it a wall. We put that stuff up and we have to allow Christ to show us how the tensions can be worked through, how the racial and cultural barriers can be worked through because God has called all nations, all tribe, all people, all languages to worship and honor him. And this is something that Ephesians 2 says, it's already been set in place 2000 years ago. Yeah. Thank to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Exactly. God's specialty is calling those who are afar off to come near. And that's what he says. You Ephesians were afar off. Before God called Abram, the people who became Israel would have been far off. Everybody would be far off if God didn't draw them near. And the cross and the blood of Jesus shed at that cross, that's what does it, Paul says. And that's all grace. So the family way of God is the way of grace. And for us, and and we'll think about this in just a minute as we conclude this episode on Ephesians 2, but if that grace gets inside of us, if we realize that grace is where we live and why we live, then grace should permeate all of our words and actions too. And we'll think about that in just a moment. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. And Daryl, here is how Paul wraps up this amazing second chapter from Ephesians, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay, okay, Scott. So we see earlier that we've been seated in heavenly realms Uh with Christ uh, right next to him. But now we are a holy building being built together in which the Holy Spirit dwells. That's big news, Scott. That's Mm. encouraging. Like we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and he lives in here. So we're included in that. Like I said in in the earlier episode, we are included in the redemption plan. But now he's showing that we're being built up as the temple in which God dwells. Some while back on Groundwork, Dave Bast and I did a series on um, biblical symbols for the church. And the temple was the one that we saw that went all the way back to Genesis 1. And temple, 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 
And it goes all the way to Revelation yep. 22 in the very end. So the temple literally in Jerusalem was sacred because the Israelites saw God is living there. The Ark of the Covenant was there, and that was like God's earthly throne. So the temple was holy because on Mount Zion there, that uh, was a profound place of deep, deep holiness because God lived there. Now, when Jesus died— what happened to the second temple? Solomon's temple was long gone, but Herod had rebuilt a new one. But what happened when Jesus died? Well, the curtain yes. that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in two, and the biblical writers always say it was torn from the top. Yes. So you know who's doing the tearing. It's God opening it up. And now we're told we're all the temple of God, and that's stunning. What's beautiful is that God seems to be moving closer and closer in creation. Yes, um, he's, exactly. He's out there creating, but that's not close enough. So he walks with Adam in the cool of the day. That's not close enough. He gives him a tent and a tabernacle. That's not close enough. He gives him a temple. That's not close enough. At Pentecost, he gives his spirit inside. That's still not close enough. He's trying to get as close as he can to believers to encourage them that he's working, that he's in them, that he's among them. And now he's applying that to not just Jews, but to Gentiles as well in this new humanity. So I don't know what would amaze them or startle them or surprise them. If that doesn't, I don't know what will, Scott. Well, think about the movement, Daryl, in this chapter. Verse one, you were dead. You were <laughs> dead. Uh, and then a couple of verses later, and you were objects of wrath. And now we end the same chapter by saying, you are the walking, talking, living, breathing temple of the Holy Spirit. Yes. God wants to live inside you through the Spirit. That is a major, major move in this chapter from, from you are dead to you are so alive now that the very life of God through the Spirit is in you. That's a transformation of stunning proportions, and Paul wanted the Ephesians to be stunned by that. But if we're not stunned by it even yet today, then something's wrong with us. we we got to get our wiring checked or something because most days we, we don't think about it all the time because it would be hard to think about it all the time because it's so amazing. But the Holy Spirit lives in us now. That's amazing. This isn't just some old dusty writing that is for the great. That was great for the Ephesians back then. But we need to understand that God is actively involved in work in our lives today. So then even if I struggle with sin, he's in me and he's working to get rid of that and change that behavior, conform me to the image of Christ. Even if I have a problem standing up for my faith, he's in me, giving me the strength I need to speak up the truth at that time. If there are systems and structures that are full of injustice, he's banding us together as believers to work against it. That's his power that he rose Jesus from the dead to use on us and in us. And I think that the Ephesians are blown away by this. I mean, it humbles me to think about it in my own personal life, how he overcomes my brokenness to get his will accomplished in my life. And Paul's just so excited about it. You know, I think we noted in the first episode that we think Paul probably wrote this letter from prison. So just picture Paul in a cell with maybe a small little window lighting in a shaft of light, and he's maybe got handcuffs on and shackles on his feet, and he's writing this letter in which he's all but jumping up and down in his jail cell, rattling those chains, chains by saying, oh my goodness.
goodness, God has lavished all of this on you. He is just hopping up and down with excitement over grace. You know, uh, Daryl, um, it may be uh, an embellished or even an apocryphal story, uh, and we've probably told it before on Groundwork, but there was a conference one time in London, England, uh, that brought together scholars from around the world. And in one breakout session, they were trying to decide, is there anything among world religions about Christianity that's unique? And so they, they went on and on. Well, what about God becoming human? Well, now lots of religions have God becoming human. Uh, what about this? What about that? Anyway, uh, C.S. Lewis walked in a little late and said, you know, what's the rumpus? And they said, well, we're trying to figure out if Christianity is anything unique. And Lewis, without missing a beat, said, well, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. And everybody thought about it. It's like, yeah. It is. That's what makes Christianity – no karma building up, no five pillars of Islam, no climbing the ladder of success. It's all grace. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is the reason why we don't have to figure out and muster up enough confidence or strength or intelligence or will to get to God's terms. But God condescends to our level Mm. so that we may have a relationship with him. And then he doesn't leave us where we are, Scott. He exalts us to the place and status that Christ has afforded for us in the heavenly realms. And now because we are the very living, breathing temple of God, there's nothing but grace and mercy attached to that story. We're saved by grace. We're saved by faith alone. And we thank God for that. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Daryl Delaney and Scott Jose, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we continue to study Paul's teaching about God's great plan and Paul's wonderful prayer for the Ephesians found in Ephesians chapter 3. We have a website, groundworkonline.com. Visit it. Tell us what Groundwork means to you and make some suggestions for future Groundwork programs. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacobs.